1: I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge. Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more.
2: Osiris.
1: Greetings and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. This is episode 19, and we're doing something a little different today. The bulk of today's episode, which is an interview with the amazing Chris Eldridge from the Punch Brothers, was recorded live at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in front of an amazing audience a few weeks back, which is something that I have not done yet for the podcast. And it was just really cool to have that live energy kept us on our toes. And Telluride, Colorado, of course, one of the most beautiful places on earth, and the Telluride Bluegrass Festival is one of the seminal acoustic music events of the year. We've been playing there for years, and before acoustic music was as cool as it is today, Telluride was holding it down, representing the best of bluegrass and all the different forms of music that are related to bluegrass and even some more outside-the-box mainstream stuff. So I thought it would be cool to start today's episode off with a short interview with Craig Ferguson, who is the owner and promoter of Telluride. So we got a short interview with Craig to take us behind the curtain and give us a little backstory on the event as well as how it's planned, how it goes down. So stick around for all of that coming right up here in a moment. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the String Duster's new record label. Keep an eye on Americana Vibes for lots of great releases coming down the pike, including Andy Falco's amazing new solo album, The Will of the Way, which is a great listen, and the audio from Travis Book's show that he's been doing in North Carolina called the Travis Book Happy Hour. That's being released as a podcast. So lots of great stuff going on there. We're also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris is behind all kinds of great podcast content, including a new show coming out August 7th called Festival Circuit, which is all about Newport Folk Fest. Sure to be a great listen, so check that out. Big shout out to our sponsors, EMG Pickups. I've been using an EMG pickup in my banjo for years. EMG is known primarily for their electric pickups, and they make such high quality stuff, all made in the USA, family owned and operated since the 70s. And the line of acoustic pickups that they're making these days are really top notch. They sound great, easy to install, and probably most importantly, really, really reliable. So for all your pickup needs, make sure to check out EMG. I also wanna give a shout out today to unofficial sponsor, Source Audio. I've gotten to know the folks at Source Audio here in recent years, Great people, and they make amazing effects pedals. I've got their Nemesis delay pedal on both my acoustic and my electric boards, and I'm using the EQ2 pedal to EQ my banjo before the signal goes off to front of house, and it really helps getting the tone dialed in. Check out Source Audio for all your effects pedal needs. They're making really high-quality and creative stuff. All right, as I said earlier for today's episode, I took my recording rig out to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival to interview Critter, And I thought it would be a cool idea to get a little backstory on Telluride for the intro to this interview. As many of you know, I'm not sure if you guys have been to Telluride, but you've probably heard of it. It has been representing everything that's cool and trending in acoustic music before acoustic music and bluegrass was cool like it is today. It's always been at the top of our list in terms of festivals that we want to get into, that we want to be a part of, that we want to play. And I'm sure the same holds true for many bands. It's a place to see and be seen, and it's also just a wonderful event with an amazing community of fans who are very loyal to Telluride. If you haven't been there... They clear out the festival grounds every night and a line forms at the gate where people literally sleep in line overnight to get a jump on the famous tarp run where they bolt in to the festival grounds and head as close to the stage as they possibly can, throw their tarp down for their people to hang out all day. And even if you have a 1 p.m. set, the place is full to the brim with some of the most loyal and enthusiastic music fans anywhere. Not to mention the fact that Telluride, Colorado is one of the most stunning, beautiful, inspiring places on earth. So this festival really has it all. And the man behind the curtain, my buddy Craig Ferguson. Craig has been awesome to the String Dusters since we got our start years ago. He booked us before anyone had any idea who we were. And we've been part of the family ever since. So I thought it would be great to kick this episode off with a short talk with Craig. We sat down a few days ago and got into the history of the festival as well as how things come together and how it's all evolved. Really interesting stuff. Here we go. all right we're here with craig ferguson the man behind the mythical telluride bluegrass festival craig how are you brother i'm good <laughs> good well it's great to see you and um obviously it was amazing to be at telluride a few weeks ago and i was curious to know how it how it felt to be back after a long strange year and a, a year off from music
2: you know it's a. Uh... It's just, you can't put it into words, what we all went through and then the experience of all being there together and Telluride, the way it was, it was just so so beautiful. I just could not have uh, dreamt of a better uh, experience, all of us together. You know, we, because we did the two weekends, we pretty much were able to include most of the people that were in our world, music. So all the artists that we've worked with for 20 years, like you guys, felt like it was it was so inclusive and it was, yeah, it was so like it was like a
1: best of it was like a best yeah. of edition almost all the all the uh all the key players were there
2: and we got to hang out for a while we got to you know talk to each other's families and and have that kind of experience and so it was it's really heartwarming to to uh to rem to even now remember that we were able to pull that off you know i'm yeah. not even quite sure how that happened you know
1: I know. Well, you guys killed it as usual, and it's it's great to be back out there playing, hearing so many musicians saying, you know, I'll never take a moment on stage for granted again. And I think everyone who's involved with music, the fans, you know, everyone on the sort of business end is feeling that same way. So tell me, how long have you been at the helm of Telluride?
2: Well, let's see. We put a group together in uh, 1988, uh in response to the festival had a lot of financial trouble and so that was it was basically a financial reorganization then some of the previous two of the three previous owners are still our partners and so really since then uh ironically enough 30 uh, plus years 30 plus years
1: and how how would you say the festival has evolved in that time like take us back 30 years ago like how many people were there what did the event look like compared to what what we experience
2: now Thirty years ago we you know it was a big uh, a big change uh was up to that point it had about seven thousand people a day for the peak Saturday and and uh we were able to reorganize and we just got really fortunate that Mark O'Connor was able to talk James Taylor in a coming for nineteen ninety, and that really introduced a lot of people to the festival. Though I would like to contend that uh the the festival had expressed what it was even before that reorganization, which was a lot of traditional bluegrass respect, but pretty diverse, you know, uh, presentation of so many other the things connecting with bluegrass. Edgar Meyer was involved back then, so you know some of the things that we're maybe known for is our classical or reaching out or like like Little Feet had played back then. So many of the things that people think of us as being. Uh, a little different about the way we, I think those were already established when we took over. And And, and of course, in 1990, we had a a sold out year for James Taylor. The next year it was 16,000. And since that day, we've had a, we had a big uh, legislative thing in the town of Telluride to where in 92, there were no music festivals in town, but us. And since then, we've always been right at that 10,000 that we've been doing until this last year.
1: Got you. And so James Taylor was that you guys have a reputation of this amazing cross section of music. And there's always things that really touch the mainstream. But was James Taylor sort of the first um, version of that, you know, uh, bringing someone to the festival who had a much wider appeal than, say, bluegrass or uh, the acoustic music world at that time?
2: You know, I I don't think so. Even before that, there was Little Feet, there was Willie Nelson, there was Roseanne Cash. Okay. You know, uh, Stevie names. Goodman, uh, Stevie Goodman, and uh, you know, and even back then, Dan Fogelberg came to the festival just to hang out. So I don't think we can really take credit. I think we can take some credit for really uh, folks and expanding and continuing that direction. Maybe we've got some more of the uh, world music edges and Celtic and yeah, we've certainly been bringing some bigger stars from time to time but i'd like to think that edge that person out of the festival was in there already
1: well that's a good segue to my next question and i'd love for you to take us inside the process of booking telluride um, because again as, as i said it's such an amazing diverse lineup bluegrass acts from the more traditional world the more sort of jammy side of bluegrass and then all these cool really unique more mainstream things. I'm thinking like, you know, Robert Plant, Janelle Monet. I remember when you guys had Mumford before they were this like mega phenomenon. So how does the booking go down? How much input do you have? How are you guys discovering bands and then ultimately putting that lineup together?
2: Well, it's, boy, it's, it's a process that's uh, not structured uh, and it's a process to where we really don't know some of the decisions we're going to make until other ones are already answered. Obviously, we uh, we look for a cross-section, so how some of the early conversations in October goes will determine what conversations we have in January, February. That's all moving up now, you know, but uh, we have a team, you know. I mean, Brian Eister is uh, on our team. Uh, he's not talk with the agents is that's kind of I get to talk to the agents but as far as making our decisions and designing the show we we have a team that worked together pretty solidly and uh and have for years you know Steve smansky has got a lot of input Brian Eister and of course all the artists and agents you know that process starts with uh with the artists that have played with us for 20 straight years right it starts right. with Jerry what do you want to do this year Sam right. what do you want to do this year Bailey you got any and then from their ideas really um is, is kind of determines some of the theme or the tenor of that year, the timbre of that year. So then we maybe turn to, oh, let's get some more classical or some Celtic or, or maybe indie rock or something. And and sometimes it's like we did that last year. Let's do something else. And, and sure. we feel f- not only free but also compelled to try to not be not to be un not to be unpredictable, but to not be predictable.
1: Well, that that's a great sort of point because. While there is some predictability in terms of, you know, we see a lot of the same faces at Telluride every year. I love what you just said because these amazing artists, you know, Jerry, Sam, Bela, Edgar, they're so prolific and they're always doing new things. And I feel like Telluride is always the place where you first see or see an early iteration of the cool things that these guys are doing on the side. Bayla's, Zakir like and Edgar. And, and it sounds like you guys really seek that out.
2: We really seek it out. And, you know, each year when we see the artists in the poser pit uh, listening to each other, you know, it really feels like Telluride's that place where they, they even want to do that for their artists, for their fellow artists, really, to step it up, to bring something Telluride to their existing set or completely structured set for telluride
1: yeah well it's it's certainly a a cool aspect of the festival you're seeing familiar faces but you're seeing them just reinvent themselves and kind of lay out this blueprint for you know what artistry can look like these days these amazing prolific artists who are virtuosos who also have all these varied voices and that's that's a really cool part of the festival so Last question before we wrap up here. Tell me how you perceive how bluegrass has changed in the past 20 years. Because, you know, I reference Telluride a lot. You know, these days there are a handful of festivals that have a fairly similar, you know, sort of angle on programming. And, um, you know, the, the music has really changed and evolved so much over the years but you guys have been doing it all along and and meanwhile there's been this incredible evolution with bluegrass and acoustic music tell me your your thoughts on that
2: well you know it very much parallels the evolution of the festival industry uh as it's you know back as 30 years ago there was maybe six half a dozen you know nationally known festivals yeah uh t- tell you about bluegrass winfield newport folk and you know New Orleans and there just weren't that many and the festivals really caught on and uh, you know what we do together Bluegrass these festivals it's fun you know and it that fun feeling has evolved and grown and there's something about Bluegrass it's just been such an engaged community where a lot of people can participate and that's what festivals are for you know we see that more this last year than anything the community that we missed uh, getting together the instrument makers, the media people, the, just the people that are committed fans, uh, all getting that opportunity to get together. Well, the bluegrass, that's part and parcel of what a bluegrass festival is, and so many people started having fun doing it, then the music just grew, you know, like you guys and Green Sky. There was one point where that was uh, a sin against bluegrass. <laughs> and I think most people have just uh, are just starting to, it's now, I think we've gone past that. Yonder had a lot to do with it, you know, Jeff and Yonder and all that. They sure took did. took bluegrass where it's never been. And now there's a lot of people in that same world that are, like, like the set you guys had at Tyrod and Green Sky. And that's, uh, now there's bluegrass bands that are very successful in the industry, and that was not the case 10 years ago. Yeah. It's beautiful to see, and it's nice. You know yeah we feel great that we have had uh something you know we've been a a partnership with those bands most of those bands for a long time and and they're starting to be enjoyed by the larger audiences and it's awesome
1: yeah you sure have you have been a gateway for bands like the string dusters to reach a larger audience to cross-pollinate with acts that are more a part of the mainstream and i would argue a, a really big part of the evolution of the music because you know you you've put bluegrass on a big stage for many years with great production in a beautiful spot and i think really opened people's minds to how this music can be presented and you know how how widely appreciated it can be now you guys also do make some effort to get more of the traditional side of the music at the festival too right
2: yeah i feel like at telluride we feel like we always that's something on the list every year it's, it's a good quality you know traditional um bluegrass band you know yeah. it's often you know when you when you got del mccurry that wants to come every other year you know that does uh, that checks that box pretty good but there's so many greats. <laughs> sure you know uh i feel perhaps that uh we're going to look forward to more traditional bluegrass next year in the future at telluride because there's so much new good stuff there too
1: yeah. Well, we're, we're looking forward to more traditional bluegrass in just a few weeks at this amazing rocky grass that you have dialed in. And I'm so glad that we get to be a part of it. And again, so grateful to be a part of Telluride, part of the family. And um, thank you so much for joining me today, Craig. Really appreciate it, man.
2: Thank you, Panda. See you at the rocky grass.
1: Great stuff there from Craig. We're going to roll ahead now to my interview with Chris Eldridge. First, a tiny bit of backstory. I first met Critter in 2003 in Boston. I was studying at the Berklee College of Music. Critter was at Oberlin. We were introduced by a musical friend, the amazing Zach Hickman, bass player for Josh Ritter and so many other acts. And we met uh, through Zach and then went down and played a gig in Boston and heard that this guy Andy Hall was around. Andy had recently graduated from Berkeley and already moved down to Nashville, but he was back for the weekend. So we got him in the mix. It was my first time meeting Critter and Andy. Zach and I were already well acquainted. We played a show. and We went into the studio and we recorded under the name Stable Horse. If any of you out there possess a Stable Horse CD, that's about as deep as the deep cuts go. And we stayed in touch, and that was really for me. That was the advent of the string dusters. And Critter had another year at Oberlin, and I stuck around in Boston for another year, and then we all moved down to Nashville around the same time and started cross pollinating with all kinds of other musicians. And Jeremy was there. Ultimately, we met Travis. Critter, of course, started playing with Chris Thiele. And we were just getting the dusters going, and that's when we teamed up with Falco, and the rest is history. Critter is really an astounding acoustic guitar player. I've always loved his playing. He's on my first two solo albums, The Handoff and Looking Glass, and he's been a part of so many great projects. Of course, the Punch Brothers are incredibly influential in the acoustic music scene, but he also has a duo with Julian Lodge, who is a big name in the jazz world, plays beautifully on the acoustic as well, and they have a few albums together. And Critter and I sat down at the workshop stage at Telluride a few weeks ago and got into everything from music and learning to rowdy party stories at our old house in Nashville, which for a minute there was the go-to party spot we had jam sessions all the time so many great musicians coming and going that was a really really special time i'll never forget it and was was just excited to sit down and rap about the past present, and future with chris eldridge here we go Thanks, Brian. and Thank you guys all so much for coming. This is our first ever live edition of the podcast, which is really cool. No better place than the Telluride Bluegrass Festival to do that. And no better guest than my great friend here, old friend, and one of my favorite guitar players ever, Mr. Chris Critter Eldridge. Make him welcome, please. Ah. Thank you. So happy to be here with yeah, you. This is great. And uh, we're just going to dive we're going to dive right in here. Let's talk about this past year and a half which has been so unprecedented in so many ways and in the podcast episodes that I've been doing recently it's always interesting to hear musicians perspectives on challenges and silver linings because you know no one ever expected anything like what we've been through in this past year and a half, and it needless to say affected the music community immeasurably and I'm just curious to hear how how you took it on and how it felt and how you came out the other side
3: yeah it was um yeah well it was a it was a shock because you know um just the immediate thing was like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to make a living? Because musicians' work is seasonal, usually. Like, a lot of times you might kind of be more or less off, you know, kind of through the winter. And the spring is kind of when things pick up. And and, and you kind of, like, uh, have the season where you, uh, you know, you do the harvest. And that's kind of like spring through summer. And so the week, I hadn't done anything. And, and the week... Um, I was about to start about three months of solid work, like without really having a day off. It was basically gonna finance most of the year. Uh, was I w- It was starting off live from here at the Kennedy Center. And that was uh, the day that everything got shut down. And so it was, there was kind of this immediate thing of like, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. This is really bad. Um, but But quickly it kind of became you know, things always present themselves when they need to. And I have always um, enjoyed teaching. And so so I, you know, went home, there was a record we were gonna make, there was all kinds of touring, that was just, that was out. Um, but my friend Julian Lodge, who I play with sometimes, am truly, extraordinary guitar player, um, created this website called guitar.study. Um, and he'd been, which is something he'd been wanting to do for years anyway. And I think that kind of gave him, the pandemic kind of gave him the chance to like actually make it happen. And, um, I found that all of a sudden I was starting to kind of supplement my income by teaching guitar lessons. These one-on-one guitar lessons that I just kind of hadn't, I always enjoyed teaching, but I just hadn't really had space for it. And it was amazing as people would sign up and we kind of like got the word out. Um, I kind of met all these people. Um, there was this, this chance to connect with all these human beings, even though it was over Skype. These people who I would see week after week. Um, it really wound up being kind of great. Yeah. You know, I kind of like became friends with some of these people. Sure. Um, so, so that was I kind of realized early on. All right. This pandemic thing is not going to be so bad. It wasn't. Uh, I, and I say that from a position of like you know I'm lucky because we didn't lose anybody who was like um, you know in in our immediate circle, and I know there are a lot of other people who did lose people um so so I don't want to make light of that at all but but um but I kind of realized like okay, this is actually sort of a nice opportunity this is going to be a good opportunity um so i got to I got to really dig down into into teaching and making those kinds of connections. And I also um, honestly got to take a break from music, which which was something that I kind of needed to do, you know? And there's no there's no
1: breaks in this career. You know, there's really not a break built in. There's not an obvious time to take a break. I think the thing that we observe and jump right into as musicians is, you're always going. You're always playing shows. You're always getting ready for the next show. And that's, that's the nature of the career. And I think hopefully, potentially, one thing, and definitely through these new teaching models that have come up, that could be one thing that will evolve. And I think what it sounds like you're saying is, you know, we've all had a chance to kind of take stock of things that are important to us that are outside uh, this hamster wheel that we sometimes find ourselves on.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, there was there was just a lot of um there was just time all of a sudden. And 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 the whole idea of being a guitar player and having to go play shows and having to be, you know, uh, at least imp- having the self-imposed idea of needing to be excellent or or anything like that, to be able to take a step away from that was really important. Yeah. Chris and I had breakfast and we were kind of talking a little bit earlier, like one thing that for me was really useful was, I think over time when you're a professional musician, and this is what you do all the time, your identity can kind of get tied up in what you do. And and uh, you, you can start to kind of believe that you are, are defined as a human being by the musician that you are, or what you're accomplishing as a musician. And of course, that's not true, but I think it's, can be, it can be very easy to kind of get, um, when you're just going and going and going, it can be very easy to kind of fall into that um, mode of thinking. Um, and, and, you know, f- and I, I often find myself in these pretty high pressure musical situations, like Punch Brothers or playing with Julian or whatever it is, are they're pretty intense. And so so, to be able to, Um, just really step away from all of that and kind of just not have to be a great musician for a little while. Even though I love music more than anything. I mean, it's like, it's my favorite thing in the world and it always has been. And I just, it'll always be there for me to to not have to define myself relative to it or, or kind of have that illusion broken that I actually was defining myself by yeah. it. Like that was actually, that was actually really probably the big thing of the pandemic that was great. Cause I just got to step away from music, um, in a, in a really healthy way and kind of center back to myself as a person. Um, and then kind of step back into having a relationship with music.
1: Yeah. You said something really interesting in there, which is the need to be excellent. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's only something I identified with in terms of when shows went away, you know, we, th- this purpose of our life to get on stage and perform. Because, you know, being a musician is one thing, but being a performer is a whole other thing. It's a whole other discipline that you need to practice, that you need to stay up on. And that was the part of it that really slid away. And Critter describes being in The Punch Brothers as pretty intense <laughs> have you guys ever been in the Punch brothers because it seems pretty intense
3: to me it's it, I can confirm it's intense
1: yeah but that's it's, great. It, it's amazing and that's what critter said you know that's what we strive for you know and anything that you want to be great at we should always try to have a goal of surrounding ourselves with people who are better than we are you know that's what and hopefully there's reciprocity there and they feel that same way about you and that's you know that's something that you guys definitely have going. And I think every great band, you know, you push each other. Yeah. But a lot of that went away in this past year. And I'm curious to know, do you think, how do you feel like teaching makes you a better musician? Because I know I know it helps me, you know, articulating the ideas and things that I've maybe done a million times and don't necessarily understand why explaining them gives me a deeper understanding and maybe like, find a little bit more utility in those things.
3: Yeah, well, I think, yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, teaching's incredible. Um, I think, I think it forces you to have to drill down to first principles, which I think first principles are kind of core with anything. If you, if you want to, if you want to help something learn, help somebody learn um, anything deeply, I think you, that learning has to be built on a real, strong foundation of what's going on so so then for me as a teacher i it makes me think like okay why like what is it with the whole even holding a flat pick like what what am i actually trying to do here what like on one hand i could just be putting my a pick on my the side of my finger and putting my thumb on there but i don't want to squeeze it because uh, then i'm going to have tension so really you know i actually want to bring it up and uh, you know have it feel as relaxed as it would be as if my thumb were just resting. I don't know, there's all this stuff that you kind of have to just really think through. you know and that 's important because you want your body to be as relaxed as possible or as neutral as possible so that it can be poised and can, it can do what needs to be done so all of this obviously i 'm not going to say that like that fast in a lesson, but there are things that that um, those are all things I kind of have to process and think about like why does anything that I do work, or how could I, how could I have, how could I help somebody um, have a kind of deep understanding uh, for themselves. Because ultimately, nobody can really teach you. you. You have to teach yourself. A teacher's there to kind of guide and inspire and, and kind of coach you. Um, but, but really, you know, anybody who's doing anything uh, who wants to learn something, you have to learn it for yourself. You have to put in the time. And so the other thing about teaching, you know, other than just drilling down to first principles and clarifying that kind of stuff for, for myself, um, which you can do with anything, is is um, trying to connect with uh, you know my own sense of curiosity and hopefully the student's sense of curiosity. Like there's a real kind of empathetic thing about being a teacher where you try and put yourself in somebody else's shoes, and you try and you try and um, encourage them um, to care. You even trick them sometimes into caring or being curious about something. But but I. Um, I love that because, because it kind of just, as I kind of explore that with each individual, um, and hopefully that's something that's, that they're not so aware of, but, but something that I'm thinking about, it kind of just deepens my uh, uh, sense of how, how kind of rich all these things can be, how, how rich an idea of, um, of uh, you know, listening can be. Like, oh, what are the ways that you could make listening seem interesting for somebody? The more, yeah. the more kind of uh, approaches, the more ways you can kind of come at that, um, the, you know, for more different people, um, the more you actually have all these different ways into that for yourself. Yeah. So I feel like it it's actually winds up being very self-serving. Um, yeah. Everything gets to be a lot more interesting and textured. Okay, now we are
1: getting inside Critter's brain. Yeah. This is this is happening. This is good. All right, so t- tell me a little bit more about this idea of, of trying to explain and inspire someone to figure out their own path, because I'm sure you feel like a lot of times when they come to you for lessons, they just expect you to show them how to hold the pick or how to understand different concepts of music when, like you say... The much more important thing is to inspire them to find their own path. Now, do you feel like that's something that they're aware of, or is that a big part of the teaching process, enlightening them to that, well, that concept?
3: I, that's something I, I like to be really open about, because I think, that, I think that it's important for people to know how to kind of get back to their own well to kind of like revisit the well for themselves. Like what's the thing that you love? What's the music that inspired you? Or why do you do this? Maybe it wasn't even like that you fell in love, you know, in my case, like with Tony Rice's music. Uh, maybe your friends just played and that's like something you wanted to do. You wanted to connect with your friends and this was like a great way to do it. Um, so, so, I mean, I think there are, uh, there's so many different reasons people could love it, but um, I think it's important you know for yourself as a, as an aspiring musician to identify why you love it and and kind of and honor that and tend to it like rather than rather than you know as a teacher saying, you know you need to practice this thing like do it fifteen times a day, you know for ten minutes, like you know every rather than do something like that, it's actually I think the more relevant thing is like well, what would you actually be interested in doing? What's something that you're gonna to want to do? Let's figure out, okay, so you like, uh, you know, playing whatever, uh, a fiddle tune, and, and trying to improvise on it. Like, what's a way that we can kind of come up with, with um, a way that you could feel creatively engaged with that? You know, and it's like teaching is kind of designing that for people and, and and empowering them to kind of find those things for themselves. Yeah. Because that's what as long as you're interested, you have you have infinite fuel. That's the whole thing. Nobody I don't know about you, but I'm like extraordinarily stubborn and no one can tell me what to do. And I'm not I don't do that. It's not on purpose. I don't mean to be that way, but I just won't do it because I, if I don't know why I should do something, I just won't do it. Um, I need to know why. Right. And, and, or I have to have some kind of thing inside me that's like compelling me to. O- often, if I understand why I should do something, that's enough. That's like, okay, I now I know why I should do this. I'm going to do it. Um, so yeah. so I feel like so much of it is just helping helping illuminate all of that. I love that. And there's a
1: great lesson in there that extends far beyond music. And this ties back to what Critter mentioned we were talking at breakfast about. A trap that I think a lot of musicians fall into where we associate so much of our identity with how we play when really it should be the other way around. And I think if you're approaching things like music or anything that you want to be great at healthily, you know, first and foremost, we need to be solid and whole within ourselves. We can't depend on the feedback that we get to inform how we feel about ourselves. There, there's a trap there. You know, and of course, there's going to be some measure of this and we're all human and we all have an ego and it's always in play. But I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you take on that aspect of things, how you how you keep that in check, because, you know, like like you said, you're the ego side. of Yeah. And you're in this incredibly overachieving band. And it's it's hard sometimes to not place this value on, you know, what we think about ourselves, or how we feel, you know, basing that on other people's impressions of how we performed or played. So, I'm just curious to know more about how you take on that part of the journey.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been something that's been kind of a struggle for me at times. Uh, and, um, but you know, I think ultimately, I kind of have this firmly held belief that like it's miraculous that any of us is here, that we all exist. Like the whole like just being alive on this planet. Like we have consciousness where like it, that's miraculous. It's incredible. Like, what are the odds? Um, and whether you come to that from like a kind of spiritual belief or religious belief, or, or just kind of like a scientific, like, you know, belief, like it's miraculous from any, from any perspective. And, and so I kind of Ultimately, have this sense that just as it's kind of miraculous uh, that like any of us is here, we all kind of just have a right to be ourselves because like we made it here we are, and I think I think that to me is like one of the big things that um, helps me defeat uh, ego kind of oriented thinking. You know what? Like I think that anybody who picks up an instrument, you know, to me music is all about self-expression, and so if you pick up an instrument um, I want to hear, you know, what you, what you think about it. Like you, you might be really early on in your thing and you might just think that like, is awesome. It's like, great. I love that. I just learned something about you as a person. And that's ultimately to me, what music is about is, you know, you know, it can be about a a number of things. It can be about transcendence and helping people kind of step away and uh, kind of move out of their kind of everyday experience of life, kind of in this transcendent, flow state where time ceases and you're just like there. Music is incredible that way. But right. it's also this incredible place where you can kind of actually communicate, um, you know, as a musician, you can put your thing out there and people can, in a way, in this honest way that like sometimes you can't do with with words and people want to know who you are and they actually kind of can know some essential truths about you, I think. So that's that's kind of one thing is that like basically yeah, we, I want to hear what everybody has to say. And I, and I feel like if I apply that to everybody else, then I need to apply that to myself.
1: And an interesting aspect of that is, you know, it's about expressing yourself. It's about making a statement, having something to say, but it's not really about whether it's right or wrong. No. And I don't even
3: know what that would be. Well,
1: I think that's, but that's, you know, that's, I know a trap that I've fallen into and you know, did I make a mistake, you know? And and sort of this like monitoring of yourself. Well, we've all heard that musician who can only play three notes on the guitar, but has more soul and expression with those three notes than other musicians have with the whole fingerboard.
3: Well, let me share this amazing thing. So I, I, um, for a long time taught, there's there's this website called Sonic Junction that I I taught on um, and um, there's a student on there, and I've talked about him in other podcasts before because this, it's so awesome, this guy Kip. And um, Kip, when he first started out, he he didn't really play. I mean, he was, I don't know, Kip was probably in his 50s somewhere. Um, and I think he played guitar a little bit when he was young. Um, but kind of set it down for 20 years and kind of picked it up later in life. And and when he first got on the site, like, you know, he, he was a beginner. He was like a pretty, you know, raw beginner. And, um, but Kip, as I would put these new lessons up, he would show up every single time. Like he was the most faithful student. He would always put a video up and I'd watch it and he was always working on it. And you could, he was engaged. You could tell he really loved it. And so, uh, you know, a couple years in, I was in my kitchen at home uh, in Nashville and my, uh, my fiance. Uh, Kristen Andreasen, who you guys might know, plays an Uncle Earl, wonderful musician. Um, so Kristen knows what's up. She's a great musician. Uh, and she just doesn't suffer foolish music. And like, she's, she's kind of a, I really trust Kristen. Um, she walked into the kitchen and Kip was playing this version. Now mind you, Kip had been playing for like two years, uh, seriously at this point, of Angeline the Baker. and And she just stopped dead in her tracks. This is totally true. She stopped dead in her tracks and she said, "What? What is that?" She had no idea what I was doing. She just heard sound coming out of the computer, and I didn't say anything. And she literally started to cry. She said, "That is like that's so beautiful. What is that?" And that was my student Kip, who'd been playing for two years, and it was just so pure of heart and true of heart that like that's what Kristen hears. She hears, you know, that's why she's kind of you know the BS filter, and and she it stopped her dead in her tracks and she actually cried and that to me is like the most perfect example of that Mm -hmm. because because kip is not a virtuoso um but kip there was something just so pure in his expression that it grabbed her and stopped her and I don't know. I mean, that's like that's the whole deal. Like that that kind of sums it all up right there. Like yeah. it just it, being a good musician is uh, to me, I mean, I also don't even want to use the word good or bad. But like, you know, I think the essence of of to me what music is about is is expression and and sharing something of yourself. And Kip did it that day and it got Kristen and it was just awesome. And we can all do that. That's yeah. the beauty of music. We can all do it whether you want to be like John Coltrane, or, you know, you want to kind of go at it like, I don't know, like Kip. I mean, it's like the whole thing. It's like you can you can make compelling, powerful music.
1: You definitely can. And I, I think it's also great sometimes when you're hearing a person work it out on the fly, you know, and, and, and power through what you might perceive as mistakes or challenges just because... To me, that's really indicative of like hearing the real thing. Like yeah. I say, we'll be right back with more great stuff from Chris Eldridge live at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival after this very short break.
3: Not today as I move myself out of your sight.
1: Oh, I- hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network.
2: Listen wherever you get podcasts.
3: Can I say one other thing yep. while we're talking about Please, this? absolutely. Okay, just the, the other ego thing is like, you can, um, I think it's also important to ask yourself, if you're getting caught in that thing, like, what's the worst that can happen? Um, And it turns out if you kind of take that as a thought experiment and just keep asking yourself that question, like what's the worst that can happen, you know, kind of like a child, like dad, like why is there a cloud in the sky? Well, because, you know, there's uh, water and it. So why is there water? Because there's an ocean and it evaporates. Why why is there, you know, it's like if you kind of keep doing that childlike, you know, just drill down question after question, you'll find that. You're always going to come to a thing where, like, the worst that can happen if you mess up or anything goes badly is nothing. I mean, it's basically it's completely benign. Um, I, and I'll actually, I know we don't have no, a ton no, of time, you're, this but, is this is great. Keep going. But I, I'll share this thing that happened with me. Um, on so I for for when Thiele uh, hosted uh, this show live from here, I was the house guitar player. Uh, on that show most of the time I mean I was, I, was, I was there the majority of the shows and one week it was um, it was Joe Pass's birthday I don't know if any of you guys ever heard that show but there would be this segment uh, for musicians birthdays where we would kind of uh, you know it was like it was sort of like an elevated karaoke band but like but we still tried to really honor these people and we, we tried to really do a good job and so it was Joe Pass's birthday and so Thiele called me on Monday and was like Joe Pass's birthday this week you up for like trying to learn something and uh And I I was like, I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I'll I'll do that, but I'm going to have to work hard because that's really not in my wheelhouse. You know, I I felt like, yeah, I can do it if I want to, but... um but I'm gonna to have to work on it. So I found this uh, uh, his his version of Round Midnight from his kind of classic record Virtuoso, and I I learned um, like an excerpt. It was like two and a half minutes, and I worked my ass off. I mean, I worked so hard on this, like so much harder than I've probably worked on any music since I was a teenager. I mean, I was that week I was probably practicing six hours a day, um, you know, and. And, uh, I worked really hard on it. And, and now this is interesting. I worked so hard on it, I think partially because my ego got involved because I was like, you well, wanted to sound good. I wanted to sound good. I yeah. wanted to, I want, cause I, you know, again, I mean, just being like probably more honest than I should be here, but, but sometimes I feel like a little bit, especially in punch brothers, it's like, everybody is so amazing. And sometimes I feel like, why. Well, work hard too, but uh, nobody, I don't get as much attention, you know? And so, which I mostly, I don't care about, but there is this like childish part of me, the little ego part that kind of gets sensitive about that sometimes. Yeah. And so, so like, um, so that little childish, sensitive ego part um, was like, okay, this is, I'm, uh, great, I'm gonna learn this Joe Pass thing, and I'm show everybody what I can do. They didn't know Critter could do all this stuff. And it was, <laughs> it's so stupid, I mean, I'm not proud of this, and I'm just, but I'm being honest. And, and um, so I worked really hard, and that, and that ego thing is part of what fueled me to work so hard. And it came time to do the show, and I'd gotten it, and I could play it really pretty well, I mean, I was, I was proud. And, and, I was getting more and more and more nervous, like as the minutes were counting down to when I was gonna do the thing, started really getting nervous. And, you know, again, because my ego was involved, because it was gonna be a reflection on me. And that's what started making me nervous. And it came time and I'd played this thing and it was like, in the segments, it's like, all right, Chris Eldridge is gonna do this thing that's like crazy, but go for it, Critter, break a leg. <laughs> and I made it about 20 seconds in and I just froze. I mean, Live From Here is like on the, you know, it had the, the, an audience of like, uh, it was like two and a half million people every week. I mean, it was a big no audience. No big deal. Yeah, it was like a massive thing. Um, and and I just froze and I couldn't get back on it. And, and I mean, I'm a professional musician. I can usually like fake my way through messing. mess. And I just, I couldn't do it. And I literally, I, I played and I, I got stuck and I just literally said these exact words, I said, I done lost it, as if, <laughs> as if maybe, you know, everybody would have, uh, be, you know, have forgiveness because I was just some country bumpkin trying to play like some uh, Joe Pass. Anyway, it was awful and I was mortified and like, it was on the radio in front of like millions of people, And at the end of the show, like when we went off air, I was like, you got to give me a mulligan. Let me do it again. And I did it again. And and I didn't, I didn't ace it, but I'd give myself probably a B plus on that one. And now that luckily is what's on the internet now. If you like look this up, you'll see me doing the thing from the, but but anyway, that night I was just so miserable because I'd invested so much of my own identity into, into doing this thing. And I'd worked so hard and I'd, I'd climbed a mountain and I was kicking ass on it and it was good. And, um. And finally, after like like seven or eight hours of just being in a horrible mood, I just realized like, wait, I'm actually fine. Like I just biffed it. That was the most epic fail of my entire music career. Anyway, like even if I wasn't on the radio in front of two and a half million people, but I was on the radio in front of two and (laughs) a half million people. And it was like, It was okay, it was fine, like everything's actually fine. When I get home, my dog Stan is gonna jump up and lick my face and be so stoked, and I'll call my mom tomorrow, and she'll be like, she's gonna love me as much as ever, and you know, Kristen's gonna be, it's like everything is just, it didn't matter, it didn't matter, it was like the worst, my kind of nightmare scenario actually came true and it happened, I didn't even get fired from the show. Like I just like, it was like these things happen. And, and so that's kind of what I mean by, by kind of drilling down and just asking yourself, what's the worst that can happen? Like that was the worst fail I've literally ever had on in public and it was the most public place I'd ever been almost, yeah. you know? It just didn't matter. So, well, so I think you, that's an important, there, that was a really deep lesson. And you, you realize how much more you think about
1: yourself than anyone thinks about you. And that's one of these tricky things with, with your ego. You know, you, it tricks you into thinking that everyone has this attention on what you're doing. That's, you you know, that's proportional to how, and to personal, how you feel. And it's not even relatively close. And, and, you know, the, the, ego is a, is a tricky thing because it serves us well in certain areas and it drives us and it pushes us. But then ultimately, to get at this thing that Critters saying, which I, you know, agree with so wholeheartedly, what people want to hear is they want to hear you express. They don't want to hear you be right. You know, they want to hear you make a statement that's your own, and that could include mistakes. They have no idea. They they don't have a, uh, you know, they don't have something to compare to. Like we have so many things to compare ourselves to, but. People just, you know, and sometimes that's why it's great to solicit information about your music or feedback from people who are totally uninformed, because they don't have yeah. that comparison machine to plug into. They just tell you whether they hear expression or not. Yeah, you know, and that's and, and that's sort of.
3: That, that also reminds me. It may, well. I mean, it's a little different, but like my dad always used. You know, so my dad uh, played in the seldom scene for many, many years, and they used to joke. They, they'd say, "Well, you know, the whole reason people come to see the seldom scene, it's the exact same reason they go to a NASCAR race. It's just to see the big crashes and the wrecks." <laughs> We've all had our big crashes. Yeah.
1: When, I, when the String Dusters played the, our first televised Opry, I kicked off a song that we have called Echoes of Goodbye, this super fast bluegrass song in the wrong key. Full stop, dead on the air, live <laughs> TV, everything. And, you know, I was I was pretty proud of myself because in most instances I would have gone down that same road and just yeah. hated myself, you know. And then, and then you're carving these... Pathways in your brain that you'll travel down again yeah. at different times, and it's a it's a thing that we end up really having to work on. And just like every other element of of this career, probably a lot of careers, it's all practice. It's all hours logged in a real mindful zone, sort of going at that certain thing. And if we spend too much time hating ourselves, guess what? When mistakes come, we hate ourselves. Yeah. But if we find a practice in forgiving ourselves, and what you know, it's it's a great thing to remember it's like life goes on and you have your worst gig you've ever had and you still wake up the next day and you didn't get fired no you know yeah it was great and if 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 you're out there listening and you did get fired then i'm just i'm sorry yeah that's (laughs) this this doesn't apply to you but um i want to talk a little bit you know we've got a few minutes left here this is awesome yeah it's so fun critter Critter and i we we go back we're
3: like we're old (laughs) homies
1: it's it's a lot of years. It's, we haven't it's, seen each other in a while. It's like so. almost 20 years now. Yeah. And um, I actually put some photos this morning on my Instagram feed of, we used to have these legendary parties in Nashville, 811 Hillview Heights. 811A, yeah, it was a grand, and, fantastic house. you know, there would be people sleeping on the lawn in the morning when you got up, <laughs> you know. And there was just like, I remember one time, maybe you don't remember this, but we got up one time after a party. And there was a bird on the kitchen floor. What? <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> we were just we were sorting out the ref, you know, the, the refuse from the party, and you know there was like empty beer cans, and then there was a um, deceased bird on the laundry room floor. And I remember I looked at credo and I was like, "Must have been a good must have been last a, yeah, yeah." <laughs> Let's talk about performance mindset because yeah. I, I think it's always so interesting to hear from amazing musicians like yourself crowds get to see us on stage they get to see the result of all this work they get to see the peak hopefully and and the payoff but there's so much work that goes into it let's just start by talking about like the hour before you go on stage what what does that hour look like
3: it, you know it's probably um if I can what I like to do is get the metronome out and there's a there's a very specific way I like to use the metronome, which is which is where I, I basically um The metronome is very misunderstood. The metronome is like the greatest tool in the world. Uh, People have the idea of the metronome as being, you know, a device that's, it's like a metaphorical piano teacher, you know, with a ruler that's like right above your knuckles, like ready to, you know, nail you at any moment. But, But that's kind of a misunderstanding, I think. I think the metronome is really just kind of showing you what the time is. It's not telling you whether what you're doing is right or wrong or whatever. It's just kind of marking a a steady passage of time. And so, what I like to do is I like to have the metronome so it's clicking very, very infrequently, like maybe uh, three or four times a minute, you know, so every 15 or 20 seconds. And I'll usually kind of work my way up to that um, so that the metronome is not like keeping the time for me. If it's clicking like this and you're just playing along, it's functioning as the timekeeper and you're just trying to like lock in with it. Whereas when it's clicking way less frequently, the responsibility for keeping the time and the flow of time transitions to you, not from the metronome. The metronome will just kind of illustrate, you know, whether you're still in sync with it. Um, and is so, that the goal of that exercise? To- well, t- yeah, t- so so re- so that's that's the setup. And, and really to me what it does is it, um, it just kind of tunes up my focus. It tunes up my sense of mindfulness. It tunes up um, my, like, so, like, I, I can feel a little, when I'm kind of on that, as long as I'm not trying to actually play, like, hit the beat. Like, if I, if I start thinking, okay, the beat's coming up, I'm going to hit it, I can guarantee that I'm g- not going to be in sync with it. But if I kind of just empty my mind and just kind of zen out into it, then I can be, boom, just dead on with it. And it, it winds up being, um, yeah, it's kind of just this focus exercise, this kind of mindful focus exercise. And, and you actually, the more you do it, the more you become sensitive to the kind of ripples in your attention, ripples in kind of your consciousness. Like I can feel if I have a little thought uh, that kind of comes in or starts to come in, I, I kinda almost perceive that as like a little ripple. Um
2: yeah.
3: and I probably will be a little off at the end. Maybe not, you know, because I've done it enough now and sometimes I know how to how to adjust for it. But basically it's this thing to just get me into this, to quiet my mind and get me into this focused headspace. So that's really what it is. It's a mindfulness thing. It's just to quiet my mind and, and get kind of to switch the voice in my head off. And that's, that's kind of where I want to be before I play music. So So you're, you're just
1: really, the, the point of that is not to lock in your timing or,
3: or your technique, it's to have you present in the moment. Exactly, but the, the cool side benefit is that your timing and your technique do get locked in. Right. But those are kind of, those are like side benefits. Right. But the, the main thing is just your clear head, just
2: being yeah. present.
1: It's an amazing thing about practice and working on music. I think there's all these different little things you can look at, but there is an overarching mode of working on music where you're you're doing it all. And this is what sounds like what you're describing. And, you know, we, we work on repertoire, we work on technique or learning these new songs. And then for me, I really try to shut it off and... Practice is more like a meditation than anything. Mm-hmm. And again, getting back to this idea that anything that you're going to be good at requires practice. And, and a lot of people, I think, they look at performing musicians and they think, oh, you get up on stage and that's when the muse visits you, you know? But it's really not the case. No. I think a great practice regimen. Is really logging as much time in the zone that you want to recreate on stage as you possibly can, if that makes sense. So, yeah. when you're away from stage and you're working on music at home, do you feel like that's that's a big goal as well?
3: Kind of. I, I sometimes, uh, if I if I have something if I have something coming up that I'm working towards, uh, then then I kind of think of it that way. A lot of times, I'll also though just kind of spend time you know, investing again in my own curiosity, like something that seems interesting that. to me, I'll just kind of like try and feed the curiosity and then I'll just kind of go down a rabbit hole and figure out some cool stuff hopefully. or it's either that or or kind of, you know, there is this kind of other practice mode that, that I feel like is very um, intentional. You know, it can be kind of goal oriented and, um, but you don't, it, it's important when you kind of have that sort of thing in mind that you, you can kind of approach what you're doing as kind of a an observer, you know, without judgment. I think being non-judgmental, ju- judgment being, uh, you know, when you introduce the concept of good and bad. That's, that's not, those concepts are not useful. Um, it's whether you are, you know, playing in time or maybe you're like dragging a little bit, but dragging's not bad, it's just dragging, it's fine. So then you try and not do that thing. And I think a lot of, a lot of times we, we kind of get in our head and if there's something we're having, we're struggling with, um, it can be easy to fall into the trap of feeling like it's bad. What you're doing is bad, but that's really not the case. It's just not what you're going for. And if you keep working on it, you'll, you'll get it. Um, it's just kind of how that, it's kind of a growth mindset versus like fixed mindset kind of thing.
1: And when the judgment machine is on,
3: ooh, the judgment.
1: The machine. ego is, you know, that you're 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 reinforcing that pathway. You know? There's a really epic book. Have you ever read this book, The Inner Game of Tennis? I read Inner Game of Music, which I know comes after Inner Game of Tennis. Yeah.
3: Yeah, the inner game of I, I've never really connected with the inner game of music. Um, it's it's cool. It's written by a bass player, um, but Critter's more into tennis these days. <laughs> yeah,
1: than he isn't. Um,
3: <laughs> but but it's like it's a really it's a really cool book that kind of you know deals with some of these these types of things. Kind of kind of um, you know allowing your kind of unconscious mind to take over and do things and and how to kind of um, observe what you're doing without judgment, but just kind of matter, very matter-of-factly. I mean, that's that's kind of what anybody who who kind of achieves a high level at anything is able to do. I mean, that's, that's kind of part of the trick, is that you just kind of have this steady growth mindset of getting a little bit better every day, not getting too emotionally involved, uh, and and just kind of seeing things for what they are. It's like can be very. It can be fun, but it can also be really dry in a beautiful way. Like kind of like a meditation. I, I always like having the, the idea of meditation with music. Um, I like that word.
1: I, I do too. And, and you know another interesting analogy to the sports world, which there are so many because it's it's a performance thing. And one thing that you notice that great athletes do is if they do make a mistake or if they do suck for a period they can put it behind them so fast that that's that's the mark of i think any really high achieving person and that's all part of that practice it's all part of that pathway that you have to build you know on your own time and you just have to put the time into and speaking of time we're running low on time here we've got andy falco coming up and this has been so cool thank you guys for coming to the first ever live taping of the podcast but before we wrap up we're just going to go best party memory from 811a Hillview Heights and if you don't have yours I'll go first
3: um I feel like some of them I can't, <laughs> I can't necessarily <laughs> yeah, Okay repeat.
1: okay best party memory suitable for a live podcast yeah. taping I tell you right? yeah, let's go with yeah, that, that. different Here, I'll go first you you first Okay so do you remember the time that we were having this party and you know everyone all the pickers were there and andy hall might have been a little overserved that night he gets it in his mind that he he doesn't want to play dobro he wants to play this lap steel and so he brings he he rolls an amp out i don't remember where the amp came from and this lap steel is so out of tune. And he, and he <laughs> just sits there and tunes this thing with the amp on like, you know, four or five. And by the time he had this thing in tune, all the pickers were gone. <laughs> and, <laughs>
3: well, wait, wait, wait. We, we can, oh, no, you weren't on that gig. I did that, I did a gig with Andy at Oberlin and my alma mater. Um, it was Chris Eldridge and the uh, Tano Shee, which is this, oh, I remember this, this. Yeah. word. Um, I forget what it is. It's like a Zen word that means, this is before I was into all that stuff, but, you know, kind of peace or whatever. But it also sounds like Tennessee. It it was bad. It was back in the day. I shouldn't have even said that. We'll edit that out. Okay, so anyway... But we had this band and we went up and played the Oberlin Folk Fest the year after I graduated. And, um, and it was me and I think Noam was on the gig. And Alan. And Alan That's Bartram right. plays with the Del McCurry band, but was also kind of the original bass player in the String Dusters when we were kind of in the, in the primordial ooze of the Dusters. And, uh, and uh, anyway, yeah, we did that same thing. We got in and there was a, there was a house party going. My friends were playing. And, and we asked if we could sit in, and it was rocking. I mean, it was a college party, and Oberlin's, you know, there's all kinds of great music there, so the band was just killing, and, like, everybody was psyched. And we got up there, <laughs> me and Andy and Noam, and, uh, yeah, we cleared the room in about 30 <laughs> seconds. Just ruined the entire party.
1: All right, we're going to have to have Sorry. a whole yeah. other episode that is strictly devoted to... The stories of yesteryear, but for right now, we're gonna we're gonna wrap things up. Critter, you're my man. Thank you're you, my man. Thank Christian you so much for joining
3: me. Thank you for making this cool podcast.
1: And uh, you guys will be back here tomorrow for the happy hour. Yeah,
3: Punch is doing the happy hour thing tomorrow. I think at one, uh, and then and then we're playing on Sunday. Yeah, can't wait, man. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. All right, thank you guys so much for joining us. Hell yeah. yeah.
1: That's a wrap on this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Huge thanks to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, and I want to give a shout out to Brian Eister. It was Brian's idea to do the podcast live at the workshop stage at Telluride a few weeks ago, and it was a great one. Really enjoyed it. Big thanks to my guests, Craig Ferguson and Chris Critter Eldridge. Thanks also to everyone who helps me make the podcast happen, including Osiris Media, Americana Vibes, and EMG Pickups. I'll be back in a few weeks with episode 20, which will conclude season two of the podcast. I hope you are all enjoying what you're hearing. Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a review. It helps a ton. And I will see you back here in a few weeks to go back inside the musician's brain.